Hey guys, and welcome back to Mind the Green Space, the podcast where we talk about all things adventure, sustainability, and mental health, and how they all somehow interconnect. This podcast is in collaboration with Powerful Parks. To find out more about them, check out the description below. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mind the Green Space. This week I'm joined with Chloe, who is the ma- is the managing director of Firepot. So Chloe, if you'd like to say hi. Hello everyone, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, and as always, founder of Palfa Parks, Isaac Kenyon, back from the expedition. Yeah, I'm back. You can't see my tan. I was out there. <laughs> Got a bit of a suntan. Suspicious tan lines, I suspect. Yeah, recovering, uh, recovering. I'm looking forward to another amazing podcast, Mind the Green Space. Awesome. Let's get into it then. Um, so, Chloe, if you can just give us a brief intro of what Firepot is and the main values of Firepot. Yeah, no problem. So, um, we are a, a very small, still quite a young um, family owned business, um, and we make dehydrated expedition food. Um, so, a lot of people sort of can look at you blankly when, when you say, or at least ask you to repeat yourself. Um, <laughs> but um, it's effectively just. Um, lightweight camping food the kind of thing that lots of people have taken on dv but hopefully um a large improvement on um what a lot of people sort of associate with um dried rations um so i think for us the key thing is that it's quite different to that horrible association people people make with sort of um warm mush um we use sort of local and fresh ingredients to make the meals effectively we're trying to replicate a home-cooked meal um and allow you to enjoy it um in in an outdoor space be it close to home or or far away on a on a longer trip um but the dehydration process means that um you can carry something a lightweight wholesome lightweight meal which has sort of plenty of taste and texture and and take it with you for however long your trip is um so we started the business really to um to create something that tasted good first and foremost but that didn't have a massive um kind of destructive um environmental impact um something that um that you could happily have at home or away um and and be as good as as if it, you made it in your own kitchen yeah, that's awesome. We did actually have five pots on our expedition, and delicious. I, they were good. They were good. I've never had dehydrated food before, and I had the posh beans five pot. Oh, nice. yeah. They were very good. Some barbecue. One of the sauce. originals. Yeah, barbecue <laughs> sauce on top, and you're good to go. It was actually really, really good. Yeah, Glad they kept you going. Yeah, they were, they were nice meals. Even in you know, we had them for lunch as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we could have chosen sandwiches, we chose these instead actually because we actually really enjoyed them like as like a different meal replacement you get so many calories out of them too brilliant yeah yeah it's an interesting one the calorie the calorie count because um a lot of people come to us um you know the kind of nature of expeditions that we deal with and they are predominantly interested in having x number of calories um per day and that's just not the way that we approach things. So we know that the calorie count is important in terms of providing you with the right amount of energy. Um, but really, um, being foodies, we definitely go for taste first. <laughs> so <laughs> there's something to be said for that in in morale terms, I think. How does one um, dehydrate their food so that it can be used later? Like if I was, for instance, 
Mm -hmm. I want to dehydrate my favorite roast dinner that I make every week. How, how would I go about doing that? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it is so anyone can can dehydrate um, food with varying degrees of success. Um, and when Firepot was founded um, by my colleague John, he started with a very small dehydrator that he bought online. I think, in fact, he bought it as a gift for his wife, um, <laughs> which is very much not enjoyed by his wife and enjoyed <laughs> by him, I think. Um, but uh, no, it was a very small dehydrator that you can just buy online, as I say. Um, but really, those types and those size dryers are um, engineered to allow you to just dry one ingredient at a time. So there are people out there who um, are very successfully um, dry, you know, their veg all separately and then sort of mix them together with dried ingredients when they go away and sort of take little sachets and assemble them while they're out there. Um, the thing the thing for us really is that we cook the whole meal together um, so that the flavors all have time to develop during the process. So when we're cooking here, you know, we um, fry the onions first, then we sear the meat if it's a meat-based dish, um, then we combine them and we do the um, the sauce and you know it's all kind of layered as you would just when you're cooking normally at home um, and that makes the drying process more complicated because you're obviously dealing with something that is much more complex than just one ingredient at a time um, so the dryers that we use here are not available to buy anywhere they're um, they are they were developed by John um, he's got a sort of technical mind and is a natural problem solver and the um, sort of commercially available dehydrators um, again are just a bigger scale version of the small um, dryers that you can buy online where you're supposed really to just do one ingredient at a time um, and a lot of expedition food brands be they using dehydration technology or freeze drying um, do have that process where they just do an ingredient at a time and then assemble them and hope that the flavors are as good as if you combine them all together from the start. Um, and we at least find that there's quite a marked difference between the results um, in flavor and in texture. Um, so to answer your question, <laughs> it would be complicated <laughs> to try and get your favorite roast dinner into a pouch um, because if you were to do it in the way that Firepot does it, um, there are lots of stages to that. And the um, the end meal is quite a complex thing. Um, and so you'd need to make sure that the moisture levels were were right and, and um, you didn't end up with something that was a bit dodgy at the end, if you like. Um, so it's something that we're actually going to possibly work on, um, <laughs> the, the roast dinner. Um, but we'll probably do it with a bit of a twist, I suspect. Scientific chefing. That's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, like... there, there are lots of people who are away um, at times of the year where there are, um, you know, significant kind of traditional meals and things. So I suspect we'll probably um, go down that road at some point. Interesting. Yeah. Learned a lot there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a simple, it's a an interesting, simple method in some ways you know dehydration is a kind of ancient way of preserving food um which makes it all sound very easy but effectively that is the simple form of what we do we kind of blow hot air um over over various different types of ingredients once they've been cooked and um that reduces about 70 percent of the moisture um which allows it to be um 
lightweight. Awesome. Will we see a firepot Christmas dinner then for all the people that do the Atlantic <laughs> Row? <laughs> Time will tell. Um, it's very hard to know what, what will work and what won't work until you start um, just sort of trialing different things. Um, the, the chicken kima curry that we, that we launched um, earlier this spring, um, we weren't sure whether we'd managed to get chicken to work um, because the meat is quite sort of sinewy um, and that doesn't necessarily dry very well. Um, so that was something that was probably 18 months of experiments um here and there just trying to get that right um so you never know um some things you have great plans for and, and they don't come off and and other things surprise you and you end up with something that um takes a different form to what you initially anticipated is, is veg vegetarian based meals uh, are they a lot easier to, to work with um i don't think i'd say that i think with um with vegetarian meals the challenge has already be has always been um from a nutritional point of view to make sure that there's enough protein in there obviously meat eaters get a lot of their protein from that source um, and i think historically um vegans and vegetarians have um, struggled to get the right levels of protein in food like this um, so that was something that we were particularly mindful of when we kind of la first launched our um three of the latest um, meals from our vegan range um so that is that is something that we were kind of aware of and keen to keep in there as well um because obviously that's a big part of the kind of dietary makeup that you need when you're um, exerting a lot of of energy day to day um so flavor is key for those meals certainly in as much as well as much as it is for meat eaters um but that's not to say that all um non-meat um ingredients are easy to dry that's certainly not true the um there are definitely some um like peas and sort of shelled um vegetables which which dry terribly um you know you can cook them and then when you remove the moisture they kind of go really hard um so um we've got to be a bit mindful of of things like that as well there are some some kind of no-go areas um for um, vegans and vegetarians as much as there are for meat eaters. Yeah. I I are you going to give it a go, Alicia? Like what? just try and dry one meal? I'm already a bad cook as it is, never mind trying no <laughs> food. <laughs> it's always worth a go, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Here's a biscuit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just keep it simple, I think you can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm probably safe for doing the fire pots because my cooking was bad enough, as you saw, uh, on the trip. <laughs> Great on the trip. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as fire pots, they come individually packaged. How have you ensured then that the packaging um, doesn't have a negative effect on the environment? Because a lot of adventurers, their values are to try and protect the mm. environment they're working in. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's true, actually, that... Um, a lot of our a lot of our customers are obviously outdoor people and therefore as you say that is a really important thing to them i mean most of, of what we sell is individually packaged not everything actually um we've worked with um kind of race organizers and and um and uh lengthy kind of polar trips and things where it's actually made a lot more sense for us to bundle multi-portion bags into one so um, 
we worked with a race in um, a, a running race in Iceland, kind of I think it's a ten day marathon, um, where they had I think two years ago when they they ran it they had about forty portions all together um, in in larger bags that they then rehydrated all in one. Obviously, they kind of expected the runners all to come into the race station, but at roughly you know within an, a given time period um and so they they used they used kind of one meal at a time and sort of did mass catering if you like from from those um but equally as i said on the longer kind of polar trips for example um you know there might be a team of three or four and they'll all eat in the evening at the same time and it's and it um for people like them who are kind of obsessive in a way about keeping their weight down um you know there are big savings to be had when you're packing months and months of food um for for multiple people to get that down a bit so um what was the bulk of course of what we do is in individually packaged there are kind of exceptions to that um but yeah so we have two packaging types effectively the kind of um um eye-catching yellow waterproof bag um which is part of the world challenge of packaging if you like um you know because so many people do things now for convenience um they are in some ways kind of the epitome of the convenient pouch um they are um mixed materials um so there's an aluminium layer and then there's a plastic layer um so that people can pour their hot water directly into the pouch and rehydrate the meal seal it and just wait the 15 minutes for it to um to be ready to eat um and then we have the compostable bags which we introduced oh two and a bit years ago um and we've been through a few iterations of those um and that is still something that has been astonishingly slow to develop we've found um Certainly, we've been to a few sort of packaging um, trade fairs and found very little development in that space over the last few years. Um, and a lot of complications, I think, in terms of what people understand to be sort of, in inverted commas, eco-friendly um, packaging, um, you know, that people, largely speaking, don't understand the difference between compostable and biodegradable and oxodegradable. And I think a lot of companies um, use that confusion to kind of mask um, various different levels of, um, I'm going to say sin, <laughs> it's, not, it's not really the appropriate word, um, but, but um, the compostable bags, we are hoping that the technology will, will catch up and eventually all of our bags will be, um, will be um, either fully recyclable or fully compostable um, but the problem at the moment is that the two elements or two of the elements that you require for a compostable material to break down is hot water and um, and and air you know air and moisture effectively heat um, and that's exactly what you're adding when you're um, pouring hot water into a pouch um, so at the moment, we offer both options um, so that both both can be possible. And we've got a lot of customers who have recently started taking the compostable bags and buying one of the yellow pouches so that they can tip 
their food into the yellow pouch from the compostable bags and reheat it in that and just wash it out um, every so often to make sure that it's you know sanitary and, and can be reused um, so that's a good way of, of doing it if you don't want to cut corners on um, on the convenience element um, which sadly a lot of people are not prepared to to sacrifice at this point I think it's quite good compostable because you know on a local scale level like if you were not going too far you were doing a weekend adventure or something like that mm -hmm. yeah. something that's shorter but you wanted to have that feeling of remoteness yeah so you don't go to a restaurant or you don't go to a pub or whatever afterwards and you can have your compostable but you just you know you put it in a pot and you reheat it and then you keep that package in and then you throw in a, that that's a nice like bridging step I think yeah. major expeditions, as you say, yeah, it's super complex. I can't imagine um, those compostable bags being used for like the big long expeditions um, mm. in, in Antarctica or across oceans and things like that. Yeah. Um, right now, but maybe the technology might get to a, a point where it it, it it does get better. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, and we hope so. And and you know, it's, there are there are lots of things I'm sure going on in the background. But progress seems to, to have been slow and, and equally you need that pressure, I think, for, for companies to develop these things quickly. I mean, in a totally different space, if you look at the vaccine, how quickly that was was developed, um, you know, in, in response to a need. I think, um, you know, it's taken a while for, for such a behavioural change um, in environmental terms to, to take place. Um, and I'm sure that um, that companies are developing alternatives. I mean, already in the last six months, we've seen a few new names come up, come up and offer compostable laminates or inks or um, anything that might contribute to uh, the end product of a of a compostable pouch, if you like. Um, so there is some development, but it seems very slow. And I think the more pressure there is, um, the more those things will speed up. Yeah. Did you see that when you introduced the compostable bags, did you see that it kind of just took off quite quickly because it was what people were wanting or? It's interesting. I think um, people need people need kind of examples um, to, to be able to trust examples and seeing other people using them before um, they kind of launch headfirst into it. Um, I think when we launched them, people were really excited that they were available because I mean, even still, there's no one else in our industry that offers a compostable packaging option. Um, so I think it's gone, I would say, from kind of about 10% of our customers um, taking compostable bags to much closer to 25% in the last year, 18 months, which is great because people are now starting to, you know, once you've tried them and you know that they're robust enough and they're suitable for your purposes and all that kind of thing, um, then you're likely to take them again. Um, there will always be people who are worried about, I don't know, water damage or, um, you know, um, it not withstanding, I don't know, a week in a rucksack or anything like that. But we now have so many examples of people who have taken them, you know, up into the Andes or, um, you know, on a on a um, water-based trip for a long weekend or, um, you know, family camping or whatever. Um, and I think the more people see that they work and they're not a hassle and um, it's not that much extra washing up if you need to cook the, the meal in a pan, um, I think the more people see that, then the more they're kind of convinced that um, 
that it could be an option and a replacement for um, for the waterproof bags. Yeah. It's always interesting with behavior change that people will only believe and buy into something once they've seen it established for a few mm. years. The act of doing is that, that doing something that is like a taking compostable bag is all that's needed to get others to to, to, yeah. to think about it. It's, but, but the talk talking about it's not not as great. I mean, I know we are talking about it on the podcast, ironically, but <laughs> we have taken these dehydrated pa ration packs across the country mm. and you know, they stored brilliantly. We used them. It didn't take hardly any extra effort to pour yeah. them into like a pot and and clean it. It was just absolutely fantastic, really, for what we needed. Um, and they were perfect for the expedition. Yeah. yeah. I guess most adventurers anyway, they kind of would bring a pot or a mug with them, wouldn't they, when they're on an expedition? Or even just like a mug, pour it in a mug, put some water in it. Anyway, from your coffee in the morning. Well, that's what we did. So <laughs> <laughs> first had experience. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming most people would do that. So having the compostable bag isn't then a largely big inconvenience, but maybe if you're on longer expeditions, I don't know. I'm not a, an adventurer. I, I was gonna say expeditionist, but is that nudist? <laughs> maybe <laughs> I think we'll blurt, 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 blurt that one out yeah i'll say adventure <laughs> don't market to the wrong audience <laughs> um so why you touched on biodegradable bags why was it important for you then to have compostable bags rather than biodegradable bags because i was of the opinion that biodegradable bags were a good thing biodegradable bags are a good thing um I think what, as I, as I mentioned before, I think there's a sort of terminology issue in that people aren't really sure what the difference is between the two things. Yeah. Um, and you can have a material that is biodegradable and that doesn't make it compostable. But, but if you have something compostable, it is therefore inherently biodegradable. Yeah. Um, so there are plenty of materials out there, um, plastics included, which degrade um, when they're left outside. I mean, it might take hundreds of years, but they will still break down and they might break down into, into microplastics. Um, they still break down. Um, whereas a compostable material should be something that when it's left outside and in the right conditions, will take various amount of times, of course, depending on those conditions to fully break down, but it should effectively go back into the soil, compost down and um, be of benefit to, to the soil. Um, so what we hoped to achieve when we um, were sourcing our pouches was something that was um, circular. Um, and we actually have plenty of customers who, or plenty of customers, probably an overstatement, but um, we've certainly had people come to us in the past and said, oh, we're going on a trip um, to the jungle or um, we're going kayaking for a week or whatever. Can we burn the pouches can we put them in the water and will they disappear can we bury them and um the answer to that is you can and eventually they will break down um but an animal might find it first or um you know there's no accounting for how long it will take to um disintegrate and fully disappear so um for us it's still something that needs to be responsibly disposed of um, you know, our pouches are um, fully certified home compostable. 
Um, so you can take them and put them in your compost bin at home and they will break down or an industrial compost um, both work and both take different lengths of time. But if you bury it in the ground, that it might not be warm enough for it to disappear in six months, which is effectively what it should do if it was in if it was in a proper home compost bin. Um, so for us, as I say, it was kind of a circular thing. Biodegradable, to me, sort of slightly covers up various um, potential evils um, and isn't always um, kind of as transparent as I think I'd like it to be. So biodegradable is definitely a good thing, um, but it seems to be a broad term that people use um, to not necessarily be as transparent as they should be about the makeup of, of their materials. Yeah, I think especially now, like biodegradable has come like an umbrella term, but people just look at it and goes, I'll be fine. I can take it as biodegradable, but don't look into it a bit more. But mm-hmm. with compostable, you know, it's going to break down at one point. Quicker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's the real difference for us. We found that with um, a lot of different podcasts or people we spoke to in the sustainability world, is that there's so many different terms that are all encompassing and it just becomes mm. almost so generic that they cancel each other out if that makes sense like the positive benefits of that term and what it's supposed to be standing for mm. is cancelled out by others that have used the same term but kind of manipulated it a little bit to keep themselves in a good light um yeah. i found that really really interesting and really intriguing and i guess it must be quite hard to then differentiate yourselves from those who are doing it in a different light um, but they're using the same broad term it's like you're doing all this hard work for the environment and then you've got another company that's just not really doing much for the environment but for some reason they're able to use that umbrella term so that mm. people buy their product thinking it's environmentally friendly when it's not so much it's interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's true and uh, you know at the end of the day a lot of particularly um big corporates as well will will just you know will all be down to to sales drive um of course that's important to keep companies afloat but um there are other factors at play obviously um and and different people are are kind of fighting different fights as well you know the the whole kind of um climate crisis is made up of of so many complex elements um and some people um care more about the kind of carbon footprint some people um have obviously these things are all kind of um interlinked very closely but um some people want to totally take out fossil fuel usage from their day-to-day um other people want to to um talk about why recycling is not an efficient way of of doing things some people think it's it's a better to do that than to to produce um, new materials that might end up being more sustainable and where is the most energy efficient way of doing things and and how do we take that all into account and they're all they're all valid questions um and it's very hard to make those decisions without all the information and and i feel that as the consumer you're not usually given all that um information to make an informed choice yeah as as a a sort of i guess you guys have been doing this sort of move into the environmental space for you know lots of long time now i'm 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 a bloke right now just completely has no clue about the environmental space that much i've just been buying stuff that i see um not really thinking about where it comes from what would you say if i wanted to learn how to improve my environmental conscious effort in buying things or choosing things what are the steps the easy baby steps that you would i guess suggest to, to me as a consumer um to, to go down 
is it a lot of research do i need to talk to people or would you suggest uh, any other means of or, or, i guess it's an education thing right yeah well i think education has a lot to do with it yes but um you know there can there can be a lot of research that you can do and again you might end up fighting one fight and not completely the other i think the best way for us all to to tackle these things and and i'm by no means an expert you know i'm i'm trying to to do these things myself as well um you know there's there's doing things on a personal level and there's obviously um you know from somebody who helps run a business try and and think about how we implement those things in what we do as a company um i mean certainly from our perspective um buying local is important to us um knowing where everything that we buy comes from as much as is possible anyway um those are things that i think people have kind of got on board with much more over the course of the last year when we all realized that um you know there were various food food shortages and we were forced to think about where um where everything that we were buying be it you know loo roll or the vegetables that you get for your um for your weekly shop um where they all came from and what kind of supply chain they went through in order to get to you and um and whether you preferred to get that from you know a local independent shop or from a from a big supermarket chain i think people were um kind of confronted with those choices in a way that we haven't been perhaps in our lifetime um and and that was no bad thing at all um i i remember thinking that that if anything if any if there was any silver lining to what everyone has been through over the last few years those were certainly some of the things um that came out of it from my perspective anyway um i think that they were really important lessons to learn yeah i think it all comes people hold on to them <laughs> yeah i think it all comes down to brand transparency as well like if the brand's telling you what it is then you should be able to trust them mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i think that's becoming this kind of authenticity in inverted commas is um is an important thing for for brands now yeah. um and it's something that that you know it is a trust thing if you if you are um if you believe in what a brand or a company stands for then i think people are much more likely to buy into it now whereas perhaps 10 15 years ago that wasn't so much of a thing yeah um there was this is a question i came across when i was looking at the blog that you you guys have on your website mm -hmm. but fire pots they need boiling water right yeah. um so you've got your jet buzz have gas I tried to look earlier when I was researching into this. Is is a gas jet boiler like? I assume it's not a sustainable way of doing it. But how much damage do you think that would have? Because oh, I, I can't. Because yeah, I can't so really think of an alternative that would be better. Because then you could have like a wood fire, but then if you're on an adventure, mm -hmm. you're going to be doing an open fire somewhere, and that that has another lot of problems with it. So, is there any way that can like there can be a sustainable way of boiling the water? Yeah, so I think um, I think again, this it's it's a little bit like the packaging question. Um, you know, we're we're um, you, it's a it's a question of finding the best option available to you, right? Like yeah. if you're going away for a week or a month or however long, and you need to be able to feed yourself. You're not passing a shop. You need some way to make fire. Um, so obviously, the the kind of gas based stoves um, 
are probably the lightest, most convenient option for people to take. Um, but if I mean, if we're talking kind of leave no trace, obviously a, a fire would, but actually um, it's a much more sustainable way of, of doing things. And, um, you know, if you're picking up, you know, little sort of um, bits of dead wood, twigs, um, you know, fir cones, whatever they may be, um, to light a fire, that could actually last you quite a lot. So it could last you a long time. It could be quite a lot of fuel. Of course, there's an element of um, you have to take your time to find all those things to make sure that you can put that into a, um, a sort of portable wood-burning stove, if you like. Um, but we, we have... Um, we have a friend down here who has a company called Wild Stoves and he is um, he's spent a lot of years kind of researching um, the use of wood in various settings across um, parts of Asia and Africa. Um, and he has set up a business that that has a range of um, wood burning stoves so that they're, you know, fossil fuel free. Um, and there's something kind of attached to that, which which he always um, sort of um, preaches the benefits of, you know, the kind of slow moving, um, slow paced um, enjoyment of um, cooking around a, a wood fire. And it's not, it's not the most efficient, um, you know, <laughs> speedy way of having your dinner, um, but it's very low impact. Um, and there's something nice about taking that time, um, particularly when you're, you know, somewhere remote in a beautiful spot and just taking in your surroundings um, while you're waiting for your lunch or your dinner or whatever. So um, a wood-based stove would certainly be more sustainable, um, but may take slightly longer than the gas would to, to heat your water. But it's certainly another option. I've got one more option. Hot springs. <laughs> oh, I missed what you said, Isaac. Hot springs. <laughs> if you could trust the water. Yeah, no, exactly. You can you can use cold water with our meals. Um they yeah, will yeah. rehydrate. They they would take longer to rehydrate, probably closer to an hour. Um but we definitely have um particularly um ultra runners um like to, to add their water um more than an hour before they um before they're due to sit down and eat so that they can do it quickly um and um they just then keep it in the back of their rucksack while they're running um to rehydrate and i think that that um seems to have worked relatively well i personally prefer a hot meal i've um, heard <laughs> i've heard that they they some of them have even altered their backpack so that it's super close to their back because mm. they heat their back heats yeah up yeah tested the, the dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sweat warmed meal. <laughs> Can you imagine that cooking it with your arm? Okay. I don't know where this podcast is going. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. Yeah. Well, that's a sustainable way for any runners out there. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like there's a big problem with, especially with an adventure, choosing convenience over sustainability, mm. but hopefully. I'm assuming now there's a lot of change in conversations. There's going to be more things coming due to demand, but mm. it's still a process by the sounds of yeah. things. I think, I think that pressure is needed, but also that behavioral change um, naturally takes a long time. Yeah, 100%. So um, outside of your products, 
how do you then encourage because I see you work a lot with adventurers um, with a blog and everything how do you encourage them to leave no trace um that's an interesting one I think probably naturally we engage with people who have the kind of same leave no trace mentality um a lot of our customers um you know the overwhelming majority I would say are all people that care about the outdoors and the time that they spend there um and and therefore are kind of that way inclined anyway um so I think you know the more we talk to people like that the more there is this kind of um shared understanding of of what's important and why it's important and um, seeing other people who are um you know if we if we're talking again about the compostable pouches for, as a, just as one example you know seeing that it is feasible to use and um you know we we never push people to go down that road but we certainly encourage people um to make that choice where they can i think the the act of offering it is important as well from a from a kind of um producer's point of view you know um and allowing people to to make that choice is important um but you know we don't we can't ensure that that um people people go out and and do the right thing um disposing of their pouches and things like that but i think all you can do is is advocate the right behavior um you know as i say kind of um interact and talk to the the people who who care about the same things and and i think that then becomes part of um the impression that people have and and that is um you know the kind of um community that you build around that i think um can become very influential um so i think you know in the same way that you know if you're if you're talking to people um socially not something that any of us have done for a long time um you naturally kind of orient towards people who who think and feel the same way as you i think it's the same it's the same for us you know we're a we're a small company um always interested in the trips that people are making and um like to talk to to them about what they're doing and why um and that's important to us um and i think it's it's nice to have that relationship with people um it ends up making a difference certainly does i think with adventurers as well when touching what you just said well i, I thought it was quite interesting that if an event if the adventurer people who are you know huge following are thinking of ways of making their leave no trace more known mm -hmm. that's the sort of people that people look to when they're trying mm. to get into adventures they find them online you know oh, i would love to go camping follow a bunch of adventurers usually on social media to get yeah. inspiration of where to go camping how to do camping what to yeah. do it so they're like the people that need to i guess drive the movement so that those who are coming to join the party or whatever we call it that way Mm -hmm. in in a similar sense yeah uh, so working so adventurers working with yourselves on compostable packaging and things like that and leading that movement it's really key it's really good that you you're, you're part of that community as well <laughs> very important well it's an interesting um it's an interesting group of people to be to be in conversation with certainly yeah all, i all found that all crazy right <laughs> <laughs> largely crazy <laughs> yeah no, all very interesting certainly Sometimes I'll be on the podcast and these people are talking. And I'm like, I, could, I I struggle to get out of bed sometimes. And you guys are just cycling around the world for four years. <laughs> I always think it's fascinating to hear what people 
um, what kind of drives people. You know, if, if somebody was doing a cycle around the world, you know, what is their incentive? Um, is it just that they want to go one bigger than the than the expedition they've done before? Or lots of people do obviously um, fundraising, charity initiatives, and and things. It's, it's I think that's one of the most interesting things, kind of learning where why people are doing things. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, personal question then: Are you into any outdoor hobbies? Any adventurous things? Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never sort of thought of them like that, really. Um, I am a bit of a cyclist. I, um, I only moved down to Dorset with the company just over three and a half years ago. Um, before that, I lived in London and I commuted everywhere by bike. Um, still do, <laughs> um, but I don't think of it so much as a hobby. It's just part of kind of who I am, what I do. Um, uh, so I am a cyclist, and certainly since I've been down in the southwest, I've loved um, kind of discovering the area, um, hiking the coast. I haven't done the whole coast path, but I'd love to do that at some point. Need a lot of time off, which I don't have at the moment. <laughs> um, and I started doing some some kayaking a few years ago as well. Um, there's a kayaking club um, just down the road from from our kitchen here. Um, which is great because we're right on the coast so you can be on the river um little um sort of mini rapids here and there um and and into the sea as well so um it's always nice to take up these things it's good um to meet different people and um you get to know why people are passionate about all this stuff and i i love kind of finding out what makes people tick I love that. Yeah. Do you think then that your hobbies have kind of changed how you view green spaces, especially since moving? Moving. Um, I think not those things particularly. I think probably moving, moving down here has done that more than necessarily being out and about on my bike or in a boat or whatever. Um, you know, you can go down to the beach here, and um, I think we're pretty lucky we're on quite a clean stretch of coastline but you know there's always just fishing tackle and um bits of litter kind of on the roads you know that we get lots of tourists down here in the summer and you really notice the difference that kind of that kind of thing um you know in the bigger cities of course there's litter um but there's also a lot more bins and a lot more um kind of um local services that that clear up and perhaps you don't notice it so much because there are so many people around I feel like moving down here you're a lot more aware of things like that um but I think on a personal level they're all things that interest me you know how to um live a more sustainable life just on a personal level um as I say the business level is something different but of course it's an extension one of the other um, particularly when it's just a small business but yeah I don't think I don't think those are necessarily directly related to um the fact that I like walking or cycling or or um paddling around in the sea um you know they're all part of of the bigger picture of things um I think being in the countryside I've been the, the difference is more stark when you see that stuff yeah um, so you may I probably feel more connect connected to to um the outside world in a broad term um, but I'm not sure whether that's directly related to everything I like doing in it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's become like an unconscious thing, like you don't realise. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 
do you think then that working for Firepot and especially you having to deal with these challenges of finding um, different methods of making sure that the product is sustainable uh, has changed your perspective on sustainable adventure? Um, I think probably the answer is yes. Again, at what conscious level, I'm not sure. Um, people are increasingly coming to us and talking about doing um, sort of carbon neutral journeys and low impact um, trips. And I think all of that is really important, but also representative of a wider change um, in in the kind of general community, um, which is all brilliant. Um, I am probably more aware of those things working here because we're talking to those people. Yeah. Um, probably I wouldn't have been um, so conscious of it um, previously, particularly because a lot of the things that I enjoy doing in the out in the outdoors are not. Um, you know they're part and parcel of my kind of day-to-day -day life I don't separate them out necessarily um, but no so I think generally it's just indicative of a of a wider change um, and um, we're kind of in a privileged position to to be witness to some of that yeah 100% um, well I'm, I'm done with my questions I don't know if Isaac has any more questions or there's always loads more questions definitely and really appreciate for coming on to our podcast and discussing your you know your your personal views on on, on climate climate change and what's going on green spaces and also the sustainability and the amazing work that you're doing at firepot to sort of instigate and imp improve the way um we we look at our packaging and and other other means as well and adventure as a whole and um, yeah thank you very much for coming on board you're very <laughs> welcome good to talk to you both yeah thank you Really just before, oops, sorry. Just before you close, Chloe, if you can just tell people where to find out more about Firepot and where they can buy Firepot meals, that would help. Oh sure. Um, well, you can come and see us. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 down in Bridport, West Dorset, and love um, showing people around the kitchen. I think um, it's not the most direct way of buying. You certainly can look us up online. Our website is www.firepotfood.com, um, and we're on social media too. But um, do come and see us if you're passing. Yeah, That's on the on the bike. <laughs> on the bike, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So down in Dorset, you can see the food being dried out. Is that? Yeah, no, we love we love um, showing people around. I think um, people think we're we're a big company now. Um, there are just two of us running it, and there's a small team in the kitchen downstairs and, and packing too. So. Um, it's good to kind of understand the whole process, I think, and you, it's hard to communicate that via a website or via an Instagram page. I think it's handy to see that firsthand. Yeah. yeah That's awesome. Yeah, I'd, li I'd like to go down and see. Same. Um, yeah, I've not, I've not um, seen, seen this being made before. Like this. Yeah, thank, thanks for the uh, offer. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, guys. <laughs> Give me a heads up so I'm not taking the post in. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Chloe. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. There are new episodes every Thursday. And if you want to keep up to date with the Mind the Green Space outside of the podcast, make sure you check us out on Instagram at Mind the Green Space. There'll be a link in the description.